goodbye to me tonight. Come on, man, play something stranger. We strictly do 80s Joel music, sir. You're listening to the Growing Up Rock Podcast with Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. Hollywood. It's the end of a month, which means it's time for another album series record. We are celebrating all these albums on their 40th anniversary. So all the albums are released in 1983. And this month, oh man, I don't know how people are going to feel about this. We might lose our rock card. I really can't tell from one album to the next, but it's okay. If this album's not for the listeners, then next month we'll snap back. But this album for this month is Billy Joel's An Innocent Man. And this is not old school glass houses moving out Billy Joel. This is like doo-wop Billy Joel. <laughs> this is an album that you picked, man. What do you got to say for yourself about this? I got nothing to say. You'll hear it when we do the songs. I'm going to tell you the text I sent to our buddy here that we haven't uh, introduced yet. Let me, let me tell you the text, okay? I sent him nine albums to choose from. I can't tell you two of them because we haven't done them yet. The other seven were Crocus Headhunter, Rick Springfield Living in Oz, Holy Diver Dio. I mean, I got to him early. Body Wishes Rod Stewart, Keep It Up Lover Boy, Kill Em All Metallica, and An Innocent Man. The text I got back was, I'll give you three, and if you have other takers, you can pass on them. Number one, Innocent Man. Number two, Keep It Up. Number three, Kill Them All. I'm like, I'll sign you up for an Innocent Man. I didn't think anybody else was crazy enough to take it. Bill Elam, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> well, you know, that's it. you guys couldn't find somebody to do Def Leppard's uh, <laughs> slang last year. And I messaged Sonny. I, I, no, I messaged Stephen like halfway into the series going, hey, if you guys need somebody to do slang, and you guys had already done it with Bill. You already had it in the can, yeah. but I was ready to do slang because I like that record. But, you know, Steven is shooting this thing down like it's Culture Club or something. This was <laughs> not that bad of an album for 1983. <laughs> Color by Numbers came out in 83, too. So we could. I'm glad that you didn't put that on the list. There were a lot of albums in 83. And to be honest, I'm absolutely happy that we're getting fresh blood to the Grown Up Rock podcast to give their views because... Bill, this is your first trip to our podcast. 
it's taken a long time, but I'm, I'm happy that you're here now because man, this is going to be an interesting album to go through. And for the listeners that don't know, Sonny starts a text group, usually a, a few weeks before we record with whoever the guest is for that particular album. Sonny likes playing head games. So he has this method a day or two out. He'll just start basically shitting on the album, even though it's his album. He'll shit on it. It's all mind games because you get on the show and he's like, oh, I love this or I love that. I mean, he may hate some things, but it's not as bad. It's never as bad as the text actually is. But to the guest, they have no clue about that. So to the guest, he's like, oh, my God, what the hell am I getting myself into? Look, I'm a Billy Joel fan, but I grew up on early Billy Joel. So this record is definitely a stretch for me but we'll get into all that bill elam welcome to the grown-up rock podcast tell us a little bit about how listeners know you because you have a to z radio and you have your own show on a to z radio right yeah i have little willie's record shelf thursday nights at 6 p.m eastern and it can go anywhere from 8 till 10 o'clock depending on the depending on my work schedule and how many songs i happen to throw together in a specific set i like to run a theme show so somehow the songs are generally connected. It's kind of like me doing my own podcast with nobody to talk to. <laughs> so I just basically talk to the audience, but then I get to play all the songs I want. And that's why I ended up in internet radio, A to Z radio.net. Right. And you and Alan Tate from ages of rock podcast, you guys are both part of A to Z radio. We've had Alan before on the podcast. I think a couple of different times he was on fairly recently. I don't remember which episode that was, but he's also part of the A to Z radio. Is there anybody else that we associate with that also is part of A to Z radio? Well, we have a, one more co-owner, and then the, basically we, we're the guys that pay the bills. Everything else is volunteer. Generally, in the evenings, we have at least a two- to three-hour show every evening, which is pretty cool. Nice. Oh, yeah, and my daughter. My daughter does a show on Tuesday afternoons from 5 to 7. Sometimes it's a playlist because she just changed jobs, but... uh. It's called Fangirl on the Radio. And that was actually going to be Fangirl Podcast when we first started going to Rock and Pod and I met you guys and all of that stuff. Now, what is her show about? It's basically a playlist and it's anything from classic rock till something that came out yesterday. She, she tends to lean toward the pop. She's a Joe Bro fan. She's a Swifty. You know, so you get some of that and you really get to, you know, she'll go in deep because like everybody else, you know, you go, oh, that pop star. I didn't know he had something that deep. And there's some deep stuff in the Taylor Swift stuff. I really, I've become a uh, closet Swifty since <laughs> since starting a station. But uh, yeah, I'm a K-pop fan, and Sonny, my friend, is a uh, Backstreet Boy and a uh, One Direction fan. <laughs> now, Britt's really into One, One Direction. She's a big uh, Harry Styles fan too. Seeing him, actually, no, she hasn't seen Harry. Every time that she went to go see him, it ended up getting canceled thanks to COVID. I've seen Harry twice now. Yeah. He's really good live, actually. He's very good live. He's a bit more rock and roll than people give him credit for. I once was in, in sync before they kicked me out. That was before they got famous, though. because you were out of sync? Because he was old as fuck. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> he got nothing else to do but anything else. <laughs> yeah, regardless of whether I couldn't dance or sing. Yeah, <laughs> it was because I was old. Go with that. <laughs> 
but with the station, we do a big variety anyway. So it's, I mean, you could be listening to George Jones one minute and the next song could be Mastodon there and everything in between. You know, I don't typically play a lot of black metal. We don't have a, like anything like that, but you know, your classics, classic hits from 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way into the, uh, the, the aughts and the knots and whatever, you know, we play it all and we don't really have any hampering. We have one song that we actually agreed not to play and it had three initials that was out by Nicki Minaj a little while back, but that's the only song that we haven't, we actually agreed to not play. Wop. That would be the one. <laughs> Sonny co-wrote that song. <laughs> Hell yes. <laughs> Me and Nicky go way back. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into this Billy Joel record. So first of all, before we get too deep into this, Bill, what's your history with Billy Joel or the Innocent Man album in general? Of course, we didn't have like a whole bunch of pop stations back in the 70s around the Cincinnati area. So there was like a couple and we actually had one in Middletown, which was a a small, like, I don't know, you know, 10,000 watt station or something like that. And they played pop music, but uh, I remember hearing Billy Joel on it. I remember Piano Man. I kind of vaguely remember moving out and some of those earlier hits there. But for me, it was Glass Houses. I got Glass Houses for Christmas in 80. And I was like, okay, this is what's happening for me. And uh, I didn't really know that it was probably the end of an era for Billy Joel because uh, a lot of his cynicism, you didn't get any more after Glass Houses. There's some of it in this album, but. We'll get to that further on down the line. Yeah, it was Glass Houses. I mean, from the broken window, you may be right, all the way through the whole album. I I used to just drop the needle and go. Yeah. Sonny, how about you? What's your history with Billy Joel? MTV Kid, um, coming into MTV in 1984. All these videos are all over the place. I was watching Bosom Buddies. Didn't know that was his song. I'm like, that's Billy Joel too? I remember... You know, watching the videos, they were catchy tunes. They played in the background a lot. I was humming the songs all the time, so I obviously liked them. I didn't probably get the album until probably 87 or 88, uh, but I'd already heard seven out of these 10 songs because they were singles, um, and they were on Top 40 radio all the time. And then also around this time, I'm just discovering, so get to 87, 88, I'm just discovering the 60s and the doo-wop and Motown, and I'm hearing you know, bullet boys do for the love of money. And I'm like, that's interesting. Well, that's different. Oh, that's not their song. That's a cover. Well, who did it? And going back and when I started hearing these songs over and over, I'm like, there's something I'd like about them, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Later on, I kind of understood. Overall, I don't know a ton about Billy Joel. I have uh, the greatest hits box set thingy, uh, which has a, you know, basically a spattering of all of his songs probably before, you know, 75 all the way to probably 95-ish, somewhere in there. Uh, I know all the hits. I own a couple of albums, but uh, this one I know the most for sure. Yeah. So for me, I got introduced to Billy Joel through some of his earlier music because I had older brothers and sisters. So songs like Moving Out, that type stuff. And that's what pulled me in to Billy Joel. But I can specifically remember there are a handful of songs that really resonate with me when I was growing up that I used to call the radio station and do the request thing. Hey, can you please play this? And I can't, I can't remember all of them, but one of the songs that I definitely remember was off of glass houses. It's still rock and roll to me. And I called excessively to get them to play that song because that was a hit single at the time. So it was on the radio pretty regularly. And, uh, I went out and bought 
glass houses just like you, Bill. Uh, that was the first Billy Joel album that I that I had and that I owned. Now, getting into the 60s side of things, it was actually movies like Remember the Titans and movies like that, where they had these really heavy Motown soundtracks that I really started to enjoy the older I got. So I would go out and seek out a lot of that type stuff uh, when I was exploring that type music and then, you know, fell in love with acts like uh, the OJs and Temptations and Smokey Robinson and just all that kind of stuff. And then got into some of the more modern Motown stuff like Rick James and things like that. But that's kind of my history with that whole thing. After I did the Island Curtain and we went on the road, I wanted to do something which was 180 degrees in the other direction. I had gotten divorced and I started dating these different women. I was going out with models and I was a rock star, you know, a single guy who was a rock star. I was like amazed at my good fortune at the time. And I started dating Christy Brinkley at the time too and started writing songs about these experiences. I was kind of, I kind of felt like a teenager all over again. All those songs that I remembered from the uh, early 60s, uh, R&B songs and the Four Seasons and the Motown music and soul music. And I, that's how I felt. And you don't fight that. When you're going to write, you write what you're feeling. And I didn't fight. I said, this. the material was coming so easily and so quickly and I was having so much fun doing it. I was kind of reliving my youth. And um, I, I just had fun. I had a great time making this recording. Please make sure you hit that follow button to subscribe to Growing Up Rock Podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right, so let's talk about some basic facts about the album. The album was released August 8th of 1983. It recorded at Chelsea Sound and A&R Recording. Uh, length of the record is 40 minutes and 25 seconds. Label is Columbia. The producer was Phil Ramone, and the album sold 7 million copies in the U.S. alone. Singles from An Innocent Man were Tell Her About It, Uptown Girl, An Innocent Man, The Longest Time, Leave a Tender Moment Alone, Keeping the Faith, and This Night. So basically every song on the album was, was released as a single. Let's talk about the artwork a little bit. So the artwork, really, it's just a picture of him sitting on the steps from what I understand regarding this album cover. The photo was taken on the front steps of 142 Mercer Street, just north of the intersection of Mercer and Prince Street in the Soho neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. So if you're from New York, you probably know that area. And I'm guessing that this building is probably still standing today. And maybe you can go check it out. It's probably a landmark type thing. What do you guys think about the album, Bill? The album cover. About as innocent of an album cover as you can get. You know, he's basically looks like he's waiting for a friend or uh, <laughs> waiting for a bus to come or something like that. You know, just chilling on the steps. Nothing too outrageous about it. But then again, there wasn't anything really outrageous about Billy Joel covers. You know, he wasn't on the cover of his last album, which yeah. uh, we discussed earlier, the the whopping piece of crap known as the Nylon Curtain, <laughs> with the exception of Pressure, which is brilliant. And then uh, I, I can't remember the album previous to that. Of course, then you go back to Glass Houses and it shows him throwing a rock at the Glass House. Little humor in that one, but there's not really any humor. I did notice that I think the steps that he's pictured on on the cover 
was recreated for one of the videos. I'm thinking it's for uh, keeping the faith. Yeah, the keeping the faith video because it's it's there's almost an identical set of steps when he's saying that uh, talking about the gang he used to run with. You can probably, if this building's still standing, I'm a hundred percent sure that the steps are probably stick out like a sore thumb because that's old craftsman type uh, work on those steps. So it's not the type of building that you see every day. So I'm guessing that uh, it's probably easy to pick that out. And like I said, it's probably a landmark at this point. Uh, Sonny, what's your thoughts on the album cover? So I like that it's black and white. My guess is he's doing that because this album is all about kind of the old days. I like that the lettering's in yellow and it's kind of got this like almost kind of a marker type font, very odd. His facial expression looks like he got maybe stood up for a date or something. He looks almost sad or he got blamed for something that wasn't his fault. I don't know. Kind of a boohoo face a little bit. The back cover though, the back cover, he's like rocking out. So for those uh, that have not seen this back cover in a while, or if you're looking it up on YouTube or whatever, and you don't have the album, just so you know who is on the back cover. So starting at Billy Joel on the left, the guy standing up, that's the drummer, Liberty DeVito. Then you got the one in the white shirt. That's Russell Javers, the guitarist. Then you up a step with a white shirt and a black jacket is David Brown, the guitarist. The guy with the glasses is Doug Stegmeyer on bass. And then the weird pose there standing up, that's Mark Rivera on sax and percussion. So obviously he told him, hey, this thing's going to be in black and white. Like dress as plain as you can, and they're fairly plain dressed. This is just very plain Jane, really. Yeah. If I can interrupt for this one point where you're mentioning the entire band. If you know anything about Billy Joel's history, there was a certain point where Billy Joel had looked at his band and said, you guys are helping me make this happen. So he had actually had a point where he was actually sharing royalties with the entire band, that entire band that Sonny just listed off. Because if you also look in the inside of Glass Houses, there's a picture of them all together, too. And it identifies every instrument they play and everything like that. And this wasn't to last very long after this album. There's some really good interviews. I know Liberty DeVito did one with John Lamoureux that was fantastic. And he basically detailed the day that Billy Joel walked in and flipped the switch off and said, sorry, guys, no more. Because he he ended up getting screwed over in a business deal to where he could barely afford to pay himself, much less pay the rest of the band. Yeah, well, there's there's great documentation of Liberty's story on that uh, Hired Guns documentary. He tells the whole story in the Hired Guns documentary. It's <laughs> it's definitely uh, turns around at one point for sure for those guys. So I was thinking about this the other day. Some say this is a concept album. I would put a huge question mark with that. I mean, is it's a concept album, I guess, from the standpoint that it's a throwback to the 60s doo-wop and that Motown sound. So from that standpoint, maybe it's concept. When I think a concept album, I think that each song tells a story that kind of goes together. And that's, I don't believe that this is that concept. Do you guys agree? Well, I, I have a different variant on it. I call it a theme. Okay. There's a running theme through the entire record. And I think it does culminate at the end. If really? I, uh, yeah. yeah. So you do feel like this is a concept. It's then, not necessarily right? a concept, but there is, I mean, uh, so you you got him going through all of these songs. You know, there's some of them that's 50s sounding. There's some of them that's Motown. There's some of them that's Philly. You know, you, you get those little different nuances of all those styles of music he goes through. And then he gets at the end. 
And at Keeping the Faith, he says, the good times weren't always good and the future isn't as bad as it seems. So he's basically culminating everything at the end of that and keeping the faith that, yeah, you remember, you, you get all your good goosebump moments out of the first nine songs. And then at the end, he's kind of saying, okay, it's, it's time to quit looking backwards and we're going to look forward. Now, whether he knew that forward was going to be Stormfront, that's a whole different story because <laughs> Stormfront is like Nylon Curtain Part 2. Uh, yeah, I think that there is there is a running theme, and okay. then he basically culminates it all. And- Fair enough, but I think maybe an album cover that might have been better or might have been more along the lines of the theme of this record maybe would have been cool to have himself and the band standing around one of those barrels where the fire is coming out, just like the old doo-wops used to sing around a barrel on a street corner, right? right? So I think maybe that would have been a slightly cooler album cover, maybe. I don't know. But then maybe they couldn't call it an innocent man. Yeah, and it's not all doo-wop. There's a lot of Motown in here, and Motown and doo-wop is two different things, right? And there's some straight-up rock and roll, too. You know, you got your 50s. Yeah, so you would have had to have some Fonzie-type pictures, some around a barrel, some all six guys are wearing the same costume and dancing around. Like, you would have had to do separate things, and then it gets just too complicated. Yeah. And then that goes back to like the look on his face, like you were saying, Sonny, you know, he could be reminiscing at the moment. Yeah. Thinking about how the good times weren't always good, but the future isn't as bad as it seems. I'm going to stick with that, by the way. So you guys are going to hear that a couple more times. See, theme to me works. Theme to me is not a problem because now you're going into the recording studio, you've done pre-production and you're looking for a certain sound, right? Or a certain feel for the entire album. Concept to me is you're trying to tie the songs together and tell a story and it forces you into a hole when the song doesn't quite fit. And then you force some things that don't always sound great to me. That's why I'm not in love with concept albums. It puts you in this, just you paint you into a corner where a theme doesn't do that because reality is the folks that he's paying homage to in all these songs most likely wouldn't have hung with each other, right? So he's all over the board here. Absolutely. Fair enough. I wrote a song called Easy Money, which was sort of like a Wilson Pickett, James Brown R&B track, and I sang it live with the full band. It was so much fun. The rest of the song started coming real fast. I wrote it in the studio. I wrote most of this album in the recording studio. I think within six weeks, I had written most of the material on the album. You can help out the podcast greatly by leaving us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or Spotify. The links are in the show notes, or just drop us a line at our email, growinguprock at gmail.com. All right, Sonny, you want to take it away? We'll go track by track? All right, so very first song, Easy Money. It's trying to pay homage to uh, James Brown and Wilson Pickett. And uh, Bill, I think it's a perfect mix of James Brown and Wilson Pickett. He's even got the invitation and the business. Uh, like he's even doing the little rasp things. It's awesome to me. Yeah. And uh, I don't disagree with you in the slightest. And it's my actual words are, oh, so glorious. It's like, this is like the, this is like a perfect deep cut because it wasn't a single. But how do you lead a song, lead an album off with such a remarkable song that's not a single? You know, because that was a thing then your first track or your second track. Of course, uh, yeah, the second track's a single, but, you know, you're just pounding right out of the box. The exact opposite of what the album before did. Yeah. The album before was just kind of meh 
all the way through the whole thing. But then they just come out. And the one thing that you, you mentioned Pickett and you mentioned James Brown, but then I, you know, I also see the uh, Jay Giles band kind of motif in that where it's just a swinging big time band, kind of like the E Street band when the E Street band's at their best. And, you know, just a show band. And that's what they were really doing in that. And then the uh, the whole gambling story behind it is absolutely hilarious and enjoyable. Even to me, by the time I hear this song, I'm fully into Prince. So I've already gotten some of the James Brown stuff in my head. I had actually not heard any James Brown probably by this point. But as I was grabbing music that was grabbing me and going, man, there's a lot of connections to James Brown, Sam Cooke, The Temptations, right? That's how I got into all this. But this was originally written for the great Rodney Dangerfield movie. I love that movie. Hey, what I got this place, Antiques? No, those are the customers. May I help you? Oh, no thanks, sir. Just browsing. How long do you intend to browse? Well, that lady there. You don't ask her how long she intends to browse. How come you're asking us how long we intend to browse? You don't look like browsers. No, what do browsers look like? Yeah, maybe I'm half browser. On his father's side. Nevertheless, I prefer that you do not browse any longer. Yeah, well, it's a free country. Yeah, if these people can browse, we can browse. Hey, Nikki, let's show the lady we're browsers, huh? Browsing. Hey, look at us, we're browsing. Hey, 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 ducks in heat. Please, <laughs> that's 18th century. Oh, oh, oh. Hey, folks, better keep browsing, she'll kick you out of here. Hey, look at us, we're browsing. Is this an odd or an end? Hey, lady, if I buy two odds, will you show us your end? <laughs> Security. Security! <laughs> Dude, let me just tell you, the first time I heard this song was on that movie. I killed that movie. I watched that movie so many times. I loved those types of movies. You know, Back to School and Easy Money. I mean, those are... <laughs> you can't grow up in the 80s and not be a fan of that stuff. Uh, if you couldn't laugh at that stuff, then you had issues. But that's the first time I heard the song. And I couldn't necessarily tell you that I knew it was Billy Joel. And I couldn't necessarily tell you that I knew it was even on an album of his because that was the only place I knew that song. I never, I never owned innocent man growing up in the eighties. That certainly wasn't a record of choice. I mean, I was buying Raven and Metallic albums. I wasn't buying Billy Joel albums at this point in time of my life. And, and, uh, this is not a song that, I would own an album, but in the movie, I freaking loved it. It was great. This song, 
makes you feel good. How do you not feel good listening to something like this? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. All right, so the second song we got, An Innocent Man. The plan was that this was going to be an homage to Benny King and the Drifters. Bill, this is straight up under the boardwalk. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You can hear it almost immediately. And those buildups, and then he brings it back down in the verses, just perfectly written. God, this is such a great song. And it goes back to that band. That band made these songs happen. And the orchestration in it, and that's another thing where I think Phil Ramon was a strong part, was helping Billy orchestrate all of these songs, because really, we're not going to find a poorly orchestrated one through the set. Spoiler. Another vibe I got from it was Blue Bayou, like Roy Orbison. and With uh, that falsetto. Oh, yeah. And it's just good stuff, man. And that's the kind of stuff that my mom danced to in high school. So I listened to that when I was a little kid. Some people stay far away from the door If there's a chance of it opening up They hear a voice in the hall outside And hope that it just passes by Some people live with the fear of a touch And the anger of having been a fool They will not listen to anyone So nobody tells them a lie I know you're only protecting yourself I know you're thinking of somebody else Someone who hurt you but I'm not above Making up for the love You've been denying you could ever feel I'm not above doing anything to So Stephen, first of all, Joel was quoted in saying, I had a suspicion that it was going to be the last time I sang high notes because I was able to hit those notes. So why not, why not go out in a blaze of glory 
These songs were the end of Billy Joel high notes, close quote. Okay. I will also tell you, and every once in a while, Stephen will go, Lord, I apologize for doing blah, blah, blah. <laughs> this song is set up perfectly for a hammered Sonny after the bar in the car as some poor woman or Tony or somebody is driving me home and I am singing this at the top of my lungs in the key of Q flat. Oh my God, dude, this song is perfectly built for that. So as a homage to Benny King and the drifters, I certainly hear it. To me, it also has a sitting by the dock of the bay feel to it. I feel like at five minutes long, it's a bit too long of a song. I like it. I love the falsetto. Uh, it just, it works all throughout this song. I mean, the high notes that Joel talks about hitting, he's using falsetto. So, uh, you know, you can do that for a long time. It's not like hitting a high note in your full voice or something like that. But uh, he just, he uses it masterfully and uh, it really, really works on this tune. And it wasn't to, to have hit records. Again, who thought that, uh, you know, songs that sounded like the late 50s, early 60s, acapella, oh, For the Longest Time is another song on here. Who would have figured they could ever be hit records in the 80s? And they were. For the Longest Time was an acapella doo-wop song that became a, a big hit. Uptown Girl was an homage to the Four Seasons, for Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. And it became a hit record. Who would have thought there would be a hit record by the Four Seasons in the 80s? Um, that was, that's where I was at. So the third song in, we have The Longest Time, and the plan was it was supposed to be an homage to the doo-wop groups like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. So the original plan was to get a vocal group, they would sing all the parts, bass was going to be played by Doug, and then the snare drum was going to be played by Liberty with just brushes. They do the drums, they do the bass, they punt on the vocal group, and Joel does all the vocals. So even those high notes... These are all Billy. Those are all him. That's Those amazing. are all him. Amazing. <laughs> because it came out really, really good. And you really, sometimes when one person does all of it, it blends weird because all the voices sound the same. These voices didn't sound the same to me. So I was like, maybe he did get a vocal group to do it, but no, Bill, he did it all by himself. Wow. That's amazing. You know, that that's where you, you build your chops to be able to do stuff like that. You don't just watch that from watching a video or reading something. You have to live that kind of music to develop that. I don't have much more than what you said, but I mean, like I said, my mom was digging this stuff when she was in school. And so when I would be cranking something like this on the radio, you know, she'd be a little less likely to tell me to turn it down as opposed to like when I had Kiss or Motley Crue playing. And Stephen, for me, one of the reasons I liked Billy Joel in the 80s was his singing was doable. And I thought I wanted to be a singer at some point. So there would be times that I would just be practicing 
and trying to do like do one of the parts all the way through the song. Rewind, do another one of the parts all the way through the song to see if I could do it. And he seemed doable and they were so catchy that I was basically humming them all the time. This is why this thing, I mean, this topped out at number four. This the song ain't no joke. Yeah. I've heard people mention that this is an acapella song, but it's really not an acapella song. I mean, there's bass in there. That's not a vocal doing bass. There's actually bass in there uh, because I listened to the song back a few times uh, while I was prepping for this episode. And I was like, why do they keep using the word acapella with this song? It's not an acapella song. It's fantastic. Again, this is another feel good tune. I mean, I just don't understand how somebody listens to this stuff and it doesn't make them feel good. Like, you know, I guess if all you want to do is hear thrash metal, then you try to listen to this, then it's not, you know, hitting your needs, but it's just this kind of stuff. Just, I mean, it, it can turn a bad day into good. Agreed. All right. So when we get to the four song this night, before I tell you about the song, this record topped out at number four on the billboard 200. It never got any higher than that. There's a reason. Number three at the time was Thriller. That was about to be number one at some point. Number two was Metal Health by Quiet Riot. That was about to be number one at some point. Number one was Synchronicity by The Police. You're talking about, well, Quiet Riot. It ended up being one of the biggest albums in rock history. I don't know if it deserved it or not. But the other two, <laughs> the other two absolutely deserve having this top bill. So he was going to have a hard time having a number one album with this. The four song was This Night. And it was supposed to be an homage to little Anthony and the Imperials. And then the chorus, as he's writing it, he's like, ah, I got to give props to Beethoven because it sounds like one of his sonatas. So he actually gives Beethoven credit. Bill, to me, <laughs> the guy who ended up married to Christy Brinkley wrote this song because he was dating L. McPherson. Billy Joel doesn't exactly come off as this super stud GQ guy. I guess you can just be funny, be able to sing, and you can get away with it all you want. Well, I mean, if you look at the video, the one I'm thinking of in particular is Uptown Girl, yeah. where it actually has Christy Brinkley in it, and he's not even as tall as she is. <laughs> yeah. So Harry's dating Ellen McPherson, also another tall bombshell. Yeah. You know, and you're sitting and he has to be riding on a dolly to be seeing her eye to eye. It's like <laughs> It's like, man, you must be packing some heat if you're going to be, you know, that that's a big turnoff for some people. But then again, it's a turn on for others. So, yeah, L. McPherson, that's that's news to me. Wow. What'd you think about this song? The song, I think, well, I, I said it's possibly a better performance than The Longest Time, but it's just not as hooky. And it doesn't quite bounce the same way. But everything is played in it, you know, and sung just perfect. And the sax solo is amazing at the end. But it just doesn't quite bounce like the longest time, so it's a it's a really another solid album track. Same suit. 
Yeah, Stephen, for me, that shoe-wop during the verses, the backing vocals repeating in certain spots, the chorus is catchy as hell. I'll tell you, I could listen to these type of songs the rest of my life and be happy and not listen to other type of music. These kind of songs, just the first four songs are so good. Billy Joel is a small Italian boy from the neighborhood, yet he's dating Elle McPherson and Christy Brinkley. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I watched an interview with him earlier this week while doing research on this album. And basically this album was born out of the fact that he had recently divorced and he was dating these models like Brinkley and like McPherson. And he was feeling like a teenager again, which brought him back to his youth and him growing up on this type of music. That was the whole thing centered around this album and what this album was born out of easy money. The first song that we talked about was actually like you said, Sonny, it's a, it's a song he wrote for the Rodney Dangerfield movie, but that song was actually what kicked off or what sparked the rest of this album, according to Billy Joel in the interview that I saw. This song in particular, though, I mean, I'll be honest with you in saying this song did not hit me like it hit you guys. I didn't love this song. In fact, this was the first song out of the, the first four that I was kind of like, eh, it's sort of meth to me. And it reminded me of Shanana. Uh, so I know it says like homage to Lil Anthony, the Imperials and stuff like that. And I'm sure that they influenced Shanana in some way. But Shanana was from my time. I grew up on like the Shanana show and, and stuff like that. So that's what it reminded me of was that. And to Bill's point, it didn't move. It didn't groove. And it wasn't as hooky as the first songs, you know. All right, and then finishing up the first side, we have Tell Her About It, the homage to Motown groups like the Supremes and the Temptations. It was a number one hit. If you're wondering what it replaced, it replaced Maniac by Michael Cimbello. Lasted Thank God. It, <laughs> lasted at <laughs> number one for one week because it got replaced by Total Eclipse of the Heart by Bonnie Tyler. So first single, super danceable tune. Should be on every 80s compilation tape for the rest of life. Absolute my bang zone. Great video too. Bill, what do you think about the song? Yeah, I put down that it's a little less Motown and more Philly. Then basically, I'm sensing a theme here. (laughs) So everything's right in it. That's the thing is so much of this album to this point has been right. You know, he doesn't really do any missteps. Even even the, the little bit of a downer of this night. He's just doing everything right where he needs to. And like you were talking about with the, uh, the charting positions, I was so tired of maniac by Cimbello because our rate, we had a local station Eaton, Ohio actually had an FM radio station at one time. They actually had the tower was off the top of a building here and they ended up moving to Springfield, which is about 35 miles from here. But the broadcasters were broadcasting out of a building in Eaton, Ohio. Of course, you know, every time I called and said, play, look it up, they wouldn't, but they did a top nine at nine. And Cimbello and Maniac was at the top of that top nine for so long that the breath of fresh air with Tell Her About It coming out was more than relieving. Just the kind 
All right, so <laughs> I'm going to say something here that's going to get a lot of hate mail. So if you want to send your hate mail, send it to growinguprock at gmail.com. But Stephen, in my Saxon, Helix, Stephen Piercy, Rush, Pink Floyd hating world, this side one is one of the best side ones I own on an album. Dude, these five songs are amazing. All right, dude. Well, you know, I'll never criticize you for a statement like that simply because you like what you like. And I, I've said it a million times, what one person likes never is right or wrong. It is what it is. And so I support that then and I support it now. It's definitely a different side of things. It's not what we normally talk about here on Growing Up Rock. I think it's a great side. Tell her about it. I absolutely love. I love groups like the Supremes and the Temptations, Martha and the Vandellas. I love that stuff. And I love these songs that are upbeat and they just move. These songs get your feet a-tapping, as they say. So I just, I dig this kind of stuff. And, you know, yes, it's it's different than what we talk about here and it's different than what we normally listen to because the majority of stuff that we listen to has... Uh, a very loud guitar in it. And this is kind of different, but the stuff that we listen to today, a lot of it has roots in this stuff that we're talking about. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're going to end a uh, album or end a side of a record with tell her about it, that's a pretty good way to end a side. <laughs> so there's nothing wrong with that first side. I don't love this night, but the rest of it, I like a lot. Okay, so the first song on side two, we have Uptown Girl, homage to Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. So according to an interview with Joel, he said the title of the song was Uptown Girls with an S because he conceived the idea because he was standing somewhere and he's like, oh my God, Christy Brinkley's right next to me, Whitney Houston's right next to me, and Al McPherson's right next to me. These are the most Uptown Girls that you could be around right now. And that's where the idea came from. What an idea, because it was a second single, and it did really well, Bill. Yeah, I had it as a, you know, fusing the doo-wop with the Phil Spector. There's our guy, Phil Spector, kind of production by from Phil Ramone. But, uh, uh, okay, well, <laughs> I'm going to read my note exactly. It says, another song to become a big hit. The nylon curtain had crashed and burned by this point. No wonder this album went seven times platinum. And if somebody really wants to know my my idea on the nylon curtain, I think I said it. It was, yeah, one song. It could have been a single. So, <laughs> but Uptown Girl, you know, that's the thing is, you know, uh, being the pudgy guy that you know didn't look like Don Johnson or whatever in 1983, you know, you kind of cheered for the guy who got the Uptown Girl who was dancing around the garage with his buddies. Now, speaking of the dancing, the videos up to this point are remarkable with how. Uh, you know, it's just shy of Broadway productions of what they had on every video. It wasn't just a four-piece band beating it out in the garage or anything like that. But it was big crossing, you know, one scene would walk into the other the uh, and the break dancers in the video. 
you know, they, they slipped that, the breakdancing bit in. And, uh, but I mean, it was just a, such a huge production. And here you've got this new thing. It's MTV basically throwing you, you know, Broadway quality images. It was amazing. It was just amazing time to be alive and to be, I was 13 when this came out, you know, I didn't have any idea <laughs> how awesome this really was when it was happening. Yes, Steven. So the album was nominated for a Grammy, Best Male Pop Vocal Performance, Lost a Thriller. I feel bad for any album that came out in the back half of 83 or the front half of 84, because those 12 months were owned by Michael Jackson, basically, right? So the song topped out at number three. When it topped out at number three, number two, All Night Long, Lionel Richie. Number one, Say, 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 Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. You wasn't going to get past number three. <laughs> Not with those two songs. Because having Michael Jackson wasn't enough that needed to add Paul McCartney's <laughs> name right. to it. And then you got a Commodore at number two. You're screwed. Like, you can't you can't beat him. What do you think about the song, Steve? All right. So, <laughs> we end side one with Tell Her About It. Amazing song. And we start side two with Uptown Girl. Goodness gracious. To me, these were always, and maybe it was because of the video and the popularity, but to me, these were always sort of brother sister songs. You know, they just, they always kind of went together hand in hand. Let me ask you this. Let me ask both of you this. Bill, between Uptown Girl and Tell Her About It, any idea from a streaming standpoint, which is the more popular? What is your guess? I'd have to say Uptown Girl. How about you, Sonny? I would have to say Tell Her About It because it was a number one hit. Okay. So according to Spotify as of right now, Tell Her About It had 40,917,000 streams. Uptown Girl had 673,319,973 streams so not for those who can't see sonny is checking steven's comma placement yes. at the moment <laughs> go for it that's as of wow. today that's what it says in in uh the album there well you know and that's the thing about both songs okay so you got tell her about it you know tell her about it but then yep. you got uptown girl what's right it's a, it's instantly a clap along song if you can't sing it or you can't bring the melody or whatever put your hands together yeah that's all the artist wants anyway yeah, so you and got I will, back-to-back songs like that. And I will say, I mean, listen, from a standpoint of what they're saying these songs are homage to, I think they're nailing it. I mean, they're not, to me, like I said, there's a few little things that it reminded me of outside of what they're listing, but an homage to Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons, dead on. I mean, especially with a lot of the uh, falsetto type stuff in this song and things like that, man. I mean, it's a, it's a great song. There's there's no doubt about it. Okay, so the second song on side two, we get Careless Talk, and the plan was it was supposed to be an homage to Sam Cooke. So, Bill, this whole 
that whoa, right? It's very beachy sounding a little bit. Feels like longest time part two to me with a full complement of music. I don't like careless talk at all. Really? <laughs> I don't. I said, and this is my words. It seems like after six t- tracks of great tunes, Billy wouldn't just up and forget how to write a good song. But here we are. Wow. Uh, I copied one of the lines. There's no rhyme scheme to it. Nothing. It's just junk. I mean, it, careless talk, telling you I'm doing wrong. Jealous talk follows wherever you go. I'm aware that you heard every terrible word. Everybody's making believe that they know I'm rhyming this better than he did, by the way. All of the intimate things that we might have said in the heat of a passionate moment and a conversation shared for the ears of nobody else. There are some things that we will never hear. There are secrets I'll never tell. And I rhymed that better than he did vocally during the song. It's just like it didn't make it the way he's singing it. It just didn't make it make any sense at all to me. You know, all lyrics don't need to rhyme, right, Bill? Well, it's not. But that's the thing about it is you've you've had Uptown Girl living in her white bread world for seven songs. And then you get this. And this isn't even like, you know, he had, a you know, some of his best stuff didn't rhyme. But it didn't flow. It doesn't flow, in my opinion, at all. I'm just not a fan. And, and I, I do think that I was still rhyming it better than he did. I don't know. So, Stephen, for me, the same cooks of the world, right? So what would happen is I would read later on, right? I would read an interview with, let's say, Cotton, and he would say Cook was one of his guys. Then you would read an interview with Jeff Scott Soto. Cook is one of my guys. You would read an interview with Prince. Cook is one of my guys. Daryl Hall. Cook is one of my guys, right? So they're four of my favorite singers of all time. So I had to go go back and listen to Sam Cook, and Cook is one of my guys. Like that voice is unbelievable there was not another voice like sam coke that i've heard it's it's just unique and so smooth right well and there's even a, a rough side to him have you ever heard uh it's a live album he did live at, uh, oh yeah i've heard it the cavern club yeah, yeah. he's it? got a little bit of rasp to him too and it's like yeah. insane energy you know it yeah. is like you, can, you don't get more rock and roll show than that yeah and that's like what i've uh, that's my wheelhouse but I like the Sam Cooke smooth stuff too, but I didn't see any smoothness in Careless Talk. Yeah, and I heard the Sam Cooke big time. I love this song. Love it. Stephen, what about you? Okay, first of all, Bill Elam, you are wrong. Good <laughs> Lord. So <laughs> I did a deep dive on Sam Cooke several years back. There's a couple documentaries out there. Uh, Amazon put out this sort of fictional movie with Muhammad Ali, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King? No, Muhammad Ali. Yeah, it was the fl- the Florida movie. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, it's it's Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, and Sam Cooke. And so I I just I went and watched the I think it's called the Two Killings of Sam Cooke on That's an uh, Netflix. Series. Yeah, it's a great series. There's just a lot of information out there. But I I did a musical dive first, and then I did this documentary dive. And Sam Cooke, man, 
the man was brilliant in what he delivered. Uh, he definitely was rock and roll. He definitely was outspoken. He just, he had a, an amazing voice. And for me personally, Careless Talk is a hidden gem deep track because this is a tune that before I started listening <laughs> to this record, I didn't have any clue on. I didn't know this, this uh, song at all because not one of the singles. I listened to this song over a couple of times back to back and I was just like, man, this is a really, really good song. And maybe it's because I knew that it was an homage to Sam Cooke and I put the two together and said, yeah, I, I definitely hear that, that homage in there. I really like this song a lot, Bill. <laughs> so did I mention this is going to be my last appearance on the <laughs> Rock Podcast? No, that's the thing is, you know, I don't, I, I can't make the relation with Sam Cooke. That's yeah. the only thing is I just, I got hung up on the lyrics and I got hung up on the way one sentence was like spoke over five lines of the court of the verse. Yeah. And it just wasn't making any sense to me. Now I probably had, I dove a little deeper into it that I, I may have seen some more of that. And if I would have actually, you know, kind of went side by side with the Sam cook, I love Sam cook. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's one of the smoothest voices in rock. I mean, he's like the Nat King Cole of rock. Nat King Cole is not rock, but Sam cook was, you know, he was just like, he took, he was like the bridge from Nat King Cole to where you got into the, your, you know, your, your regular rockers. But, uh, I just didn't see that in this song. And I knew I was going to have to pick a bottom too. So we'll get to that later. <laughs> like a lot of the artists uh, in rock and roll that are my favorite singers. I love the artist that can really smooth things out and deliver a smooth thing. But then when it's time to get nasty, they can reach down in that gut and get nasty. And I love that from the female singers and from the male singers, because females, man, when they do it, it's, Oh, so, so good. <laughs> and they just have a way of, of doing it. That's, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's brilliant sounding. Uh, not I agree on that concept. I just don't get that yeah. from the song. Yeah. You know, it's, that's the thing is I'm just like, and by the way, you know, on the, the, uh, the two part Sam Cook story, uh, Alan Klein, what a son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> it's like, I think that he's the reason that Sam Cook and John Lennon are dead, but I'm just going to say that I'll leave that there. Oh, I think I had somebody else killing Sam Cook. I'll tell you after we're done recording. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> and it's the Grown Up Rock Conspiracy yeah, Theory podcast yeah, yeah, now. Yeah, we're going to start a true crime podcast. How about right. that? We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Look at all the people here tonight. Oh, man. I got to make an announcement right here. Can you hear me out there? It's time to take a quick break in the action from this week's episode. Sonny and I just wanted to thank all of you, the listeners, for joining us each and every week. Whether you just found us today or have been listening for multiple episodes, we love your passion for music and rock and roll in general. We consider you all part of our loud minority family. Always remember you can communicate with us a few different ways. If you don't mind Facebook, head over to the Growing Up Rock Loud Minority Facebook group and be part of the conversation. It's a private group and all you have to do is ask to join, answer a few rock and roll questions, and you're in. If you despise Facebook, which many people do, then send us an email to growinguprock at gmail.com. We get everything there. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Insta at Growing Up Rock, which is one word, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. In the event you feel entertained by our podcast, we would appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode and go leave us a five-star review either at Apple Podcast or Podchaser. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. Okay, so the eighth song on the album, third one on the second side, is called Christy Lee, which is supposed to be an homage to Little Richard or Jerry Lee Lewis. So just so everybody's in the know, Christy Brinkley was born Christy Lee Hudson. So it gives you an idea who the song's about. You mean she's Slash's sister? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bill, to me, I heard more Chuck Berry's Maybelline than I heard little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis. Now the honky tonk piano is getting thumped. So I guess maybe that's where the little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis is, but the, the vocal and all that I heard Maybelline. Yeah. And I'm a big fan of Jerry Lee Lewis. And actually the Jerry Lee Lewis, little Richard, you know, all of those guys pounding the piano. Yeah. I heard that and the, the music was great, but, um, I, I just kind of got the idea that it was like a filler song really. And I, I read things on both sides that it was about Christy Brinkley and that it wasn't. And it's kind of like, okay, well, then we've got that. So uh, I just kind of thought, it, you know, it was, a, it was just somebody trying to sound like a 50s song. I and mean, it did sound like a 50s song, but I, I didn't feel like the energy of a, a Jerry Lee Lewis. Like even Jerry Lee Lewis into the 70s stuff that he did, you know, he was still breaking string winders on pianos because he was pounding them so hard. So I wasn't, wasn't getting that out of it, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of nice boogie, but I still call it absolute filler. Even the hard, I like this song, but the hard part about this song is that if it was the first one you heard off this album, you may not give the rest of the album a shot because that whole, that, that C, that vocal run he's doing is a little odd when you hear it the first couple of times. But if you've listened to the song several times, you kind of get used to why that vocal run is happening. What'd you think about the song? So on this song, I am a fan of Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and even Chuck Berry, and I definitely hear the Maybelline thing that you suggested, Sonny. To me, I'm on the exact same page as Bill. I think this is a huge filler song. For whatever reason, this song didn't connect with me. I, I felt like it was meh. I do think that the sax solo was good, and in an interview I saw with Billy, he said it was not about Christy Brinkley, that it was about a fictitious person that fell in love with a sax player. So I don't know that's straight out of his, his mouth, but overall, I just thought it was meh. All right. So then we get to the second to last song, leave a tender moment alone, homage to Smokey Robinson. I don't know a ton about Smokey Robinson. I know he wrote or co-wrote a lot of the Motown that I like. The song is catchy as hell. 
that higher breathy note build that he's doing, man, he places it well when he says right, light, close, arose, and he sells it well. And I was wondering, I'm like, man, the first time I heard this song, I remember I, I absolutely loved it. What the hell was it? It's very Hall of Notes. That's why I love it so much. Yeah. And I, I made a comment that, uh, that he broke out of the mold from the two previous songs to really compose a good, solid album track, much like Easy Money. Now, see, I didn't see Easy Money, the movie. So I, I look at that as completely an album track. So I'm not a movie guy. You you'll, you can learn that from me. I'm just not a movie guy at all. But um, but it's it's just a great, solid album track. And, uh, you know, it's setting you up for the big finale because there might be people who would have uh, maybe stopped listening at the two previous songs. You never know. But it, it kind of hooks you back in and sets you up for the big finale. So, Stephen, to give you an idea of how long this album lasted, this was the fifth single. <laughs> it, it cracked the top 42. Man, this thing went on for a while. Do you guys know the House Connection? What is a house? The the show House with uh, Hugh Laurie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a, this song is apparently in an episode of that where a bar fight breaks out and a mirror gets broken or something like that. I mean, I read like three or four different stories about where the the song went back to that episode of House. I'd never seen it. I used to watch House all the time, but I never made the correlation. Mm-mm. So I'll leave it at that, I guess. <laughs> Steven, your thought on the song? Uh, so my first thought on this song was that I got a real Stevie Wonder vibe to it. And maybe it's that sort of harmonica thing at the beginning, but the beginning is very sort of Stevie to me. Uh, I love the smoky style vocal choices that he makes. Overall, this song for me is just maybe a couple steps above meh. Like I like I like some of it, but it just didn't stick with me that much. So yeah, it's it's okay. And then we get to the final song, Keeping the Faith, and Bill, what a perfect closer. Because oh it like it's like the best of the other nine songs all put into one song and thrown at the end. And like, I don't know if this is going to end up in the original part of the recording. We had mentioned that I think that this is the culmination of the theme. So where he's, he's, he's basically went through, you know, his adolescence and his, uh, his young adulthood and keeping the faith is where he's wrapping it up and putting a bow on it and saying, okay, well, this is, this is, I'm done with this section of it. The good times weren't always good and the future isn't as bad as it seems. And, you know, the, the video is absolutely hilarious. It is just so cornball. And, you know, the, the judge is sitting at a jukebox. That's great. And all the cameos in it. I, I was sitting here watching it last night, and I'm going, oh, my God, it's Richard Pryor. 
because Richard Pryor is reading the paper at the beginning of it, you know, and then you have Joe Piscopo, who nobody knows now, <laughs> but he was at the end of it. Yeah, just a great song. And I mean, you know, back to the the whole band putting it in. Now, that's the one thing of when you go back to the videos is that you didn't see the bands in the videos unless I didn't get to see the picture from the back cover. I tried looking for it and it didn't work out. But were the guys in the video for the longest time, the band members? I think some of the band members are in there, if I remember right. Because I think the taller guy is Liberty. Yeah. Because Liberty's really tall. He's like six, nine, or seven foot tall. I mean, he's really tall. He's got an enormous foot. Because I, I always looked at the inside of uh, glass houses and I go, my God, look at that guy's foot. It's huge. <laughs> but anyway, I thought the taller guy kind of looked like Liberty, but I didn't recognize the other guys. But uh, the band, you know, they other than that, they weren't in any of the videos. You know, it was Billy Joel. It was the artist. But the band came in and made all of this happen. And if he didn't have that smashingly good band, we may not be talking about this today. Stephen, Keeping the Faith was a sick single, topped out at 18, so another top 20 single. And it was supposed to be an homage to Betty Wright's cleanup woman. I don't know who the hell that is. And a, a lyrical homage to the pre-British invasion rock and roll, okay, which was all about be free do what you want, have fun. Well, the, half the eighties was about that. So I guess it was about everything. Perfect end to an album though. I'll tell you what, you said it all. This is an absolute gem, perfect ending to an album. I don't know about all the homages in this particular song, but I love this tune. I love the way it moves and I love the way it grooves. It feels good. And it ends up on quite a few playlists, drive playlists for me. Lost in let's remember You think I'm feeling older and missing my younger days Oh, then you should have known me much better Cause my past is something that never got in my way Oh no Still I would not be here now if I never had the hunger And I'm not ashamed to say the wild boys were my friends I never felt the desire To let music set me on fire Then I was saved yeah. That's why I'm keeping the faith Yeah, 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 yeah Keeping the faith It won't matter, dog boots Only Flag Brothers had them with a Cuban heel all right, so we're going to go to top two, bottom two, and get your final thoughts on the record. I'll start here. Top two for me are the longest time in keeping the faith. Bottom two for me were very difficult because this is a Desert Island album for me. But I picked Christy Lee and Careless Talk, but I never skipped those songs when I listened to it. Final thoughts for me, I think it was a good idea to write new songs with all the flavors because he connected to millions of folks because of the feelings and stylings of what he was doing without having to do cover tunes to do it. Because otherwise, he doesn't sell 7 million albums. Because then this is just the greatest hits of other stuff you can find somewhere else. And Billy Joel's basically copying what the other folks did. It's better to do it homage style if you can sell it. And I thought Billy really sold it. He really sold it indeed. Bill, top two, bottom two, and give me your final thoughts. Okay, uh, mine was long, longest time in keeping the faith. 
And then my bottom two was also Careless Talk and Christy Lee. Now, granted, as much as I bagged on those two songs through this, you know, those certainly aren't the worst two songs of Billy Joel's catalog. I'm sure you'll probably find those on a nylon curtain. But <laughs> Did the, the nylon but, curtain, like, man, you know, I, cheat on somebody with your wife or something? Okay, like, what well, here, here, here's, okay so, and, and I'll let it in for the listeners. Yeah, I studied the wrong album for like three weeks before we started this. But the nylon curtain has Allentown and Pressure on it, which are great, amazing productions, much like what we heard here today. But... The rest of it sounds like ELO demos. It's like a trap. You know, there's like hardly any reverb on it. The, the, the mixes sound horrible. It sounds like ELO was just trying to get their song arrangements together. Because, you know, ELO's always got that dry kind of sound, you know, the real snappy snares and stuff like that. But outside of Allentown and Pressure, the rest of the album was a lump of crap, in my opinion. So, uh, yeah, I'll take the entire album, including my bottom two, on this over nine-tenths of the nylon curtain. <laughs> Steven, top two, top two, bottom two, final thoughts. So my top two are Tell Her About It and Easy Money. My bottom two are This Night and Christy Lee. My final thoughts on the record is it's a great change of pace. I can put this record on and let it play throughout. You know, this is somebody that would have been really good at doing this but the difference was that he's not a musician like Billy's a musician, right? Is Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart chose to do like a, a tribute album, right? To all these people that were part of his upbringing. And he did really well with that album. But I think Billy, you know, took the right path and just used his songwriting ability and used his musicianship and wrote an album as an homage to a lot of the people that he grew up with. And it, look, it turned out fantastic. Hey, Hollywood, you know what time it is. Let's connect it to Kiss. You wanted the best and you got the best. The hottest band in the world, Kiss! Okay, so sticking with the 83 theme, we're going to go with a live version of a song off of Lick It Up. So here is Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Eric Carr, and Bruce Kulick from 1985, live in San Bernardino, California, with Eric Carr on vocals, doing Young and Wasted. Now Eric wants to sing a little song for you, so girls listen good. This is a song all about what it's good, what it's good to do with a boy like Eric. This one's called Young and Wasted!
I'd like to tell you about a song that Eric Carr is looking for women that are young and wasted. <laughs> I don't. What is it? I mean, I like this song and Eric's great at delivering the vocals. But man, this song, I listened to it today. I was like, God dang, it's a fast song to begin with. It's really fast live. Goodness gracious. How the hell Eric could play and sing that at the same time. I don't know. Especially with his kick patterns. Those kick patterns are insane on that song. And he's just right along with it. You know, I, I hope I'm not overstepping. You know, it's just like a. I first saw Young and Wasted Live with Eric singing it. You know, I had the, re- I had the record, but I mean, when I went to first see him live, you know, he was already doing it then because I don't know if Gene ever did it live. But uh, the thing that kind of got me today was the stage rap. It was like Paul Stanley seemed like he had a thing about, well, let's call Eric a little boy. You know, he may look like a boy, but he's all man, you know, that kind of stuff. And it's like, okay, you know, technically, I think, we'll see. I think Eric is like eight months younger than Paul. So that gives him the right to call him a little boy. You know, I think that might have been some kind of side jab that nobody ever caught on to until way later when they found out that Eric and Paul weren't getting along at certain points. Really? He was that he was only that much younger. Yeah, he was. Well, Eric's birthday is in November of '52, and Paul was born in uh, January. 52. Wow, that's that's a surprise to me. I would have thought that Paul was a lot older. Than, yeah, they're uh, almost Eric. the same age, huh? So, here's my thoughts on this. All right, musically, song's great. The vocal, I'm sorry, is meh at best. I get it. We're not supposed to say anything bad about Eric Carr, but that vocal's not good. It's raspy. It's pitchy. It's out of key at times. He's sometimes out of breath. It, it's just, I love the song. I have never loved it live. So I got a question for both of you. I'm going to start with Bill. Eric lives. Can he actually make it as a singer in his own band? I don't think so. Well, I've heard him like they, they did. Uh, there was like a video of them at SIR or something where they were singing Beatles tunes or something like that. And then another one where they sang White Christmas at Christmas time like a three-part harmony. I mean, he's got the skills to find the harmonies, but then again, so does Eric Singer. But when you get Eric Singer singing a lead, you don't want to hear that either. So he could have managed to be in a band as a lead singer, but he would have never, I don't think he would have ever seen any great success as a, as a lead vocalist. And that's my thing, Stephen, is if he's a lead vocalist from, let's say, 1992 to 1997 in some band that's doing hard rock slash grunge, no matter how raspy his voice is, he does not get a hit. Yeah, I don't know about all that, but I mean, I've heard Eric sing. I think he can sing. I do like the rasps to his voice. I think it's unfair to judge him on this particular performance just because, like I said to you, I don't know how you can play at that kind of speed and be able to sing. Don't get me wrong. I don't think the guy is Don Henley or Dean Castronova. You know, so he doesn't have that kind of voice. Those guys can really sing, but, uh, you know, playing drums and singing, especially anything that's fast paced like that, I, I don't know how you can do it and stay, you know, in key and everything else. Unfavorable things about his voice. But then again, you don't know how he performed the rest of the time. Now, I figure we're going to get emails about it anyway, so I'll just say it out loud, Stephen. 300 plus episodes. It's Dean Castronovo. There is no A at the end. What did I say? Dean Castronova. You've been saying it for 300 plus episodes. That's what he gets for having a hard name. <laughs> I, I used to call him just Dean the drummer because that's what his handle is like on Twitter or something. <laughs> Dean the drummer. 
He's lucky I don't call him Dean Casanova. I think I used to call him that. (laughs) (laughs) He might like that. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, that puts a capper on the month of July. Billy Joel's Innocent Man. Bill Elam from A to Z Radio dot net. Little Willie, the radio show. Thursday nights at 6 p.m. Little Willie, A to Z Radio dot net. Thanks for coming on to the Growing Up Rock podcast. I'm sure you'll be back in the future. Thanks for sharing your insight on Billy Joel's An Innocent Man. Hopefully, we have listeners that will come into August with us because we got (laughs) a little bit more of a rocking record in August. I don't, I think the next three picks are are sunny records for some reason. They all fell one after the uh, another, but next month is going to be a good one. And uh, that's it. That's the end of July for us. Bill, do you have anything you would like to add before well, I, we get out of here? I appreciate the invite. It's been really fun. I'm glad it hasn't been so long since I've seen you guys because we were just together in uh, March, which was awesome. And uh, hopefully it's, I'm going to probably see Sonny uh, before the 4th of July. And I'd like to get down there and see you too, Stephen. But uh, let's see how that works out. Maybe a, a winter vacation or something where I may head down to georgia way but i appreciate you having us on and like i like you said it was a little willie's record shelf 6 p.m on thursday nights on a to z radio.net we're on facebook we don't have a twitter page but i think we've got an instagram page but alan handles all of that junk so thanks a lot for having us and it's been a really fun time sunny pooney my co-host and partner in crime do you have anything to add before we shuffle rattle and roll us out of here Thanks for listening. Desert Island album. No doubt. Love it. And that's why we love him, folks. He'll go from Billy Joel to Jeff Scott Soto to Amaranth. (laughs) And he'll totally freak you out in the text chat about it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it. Until next month. See you later. That's the show. So let's shuffle, rattle, and roll us out of here. Until next week. Always remember. Peace, love, and rock and roll. Growing Up Rock is a proud member of the Pantheon Network. Pantheon is the place for music lovers. Check us out along with many other great music podcasts on the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.